So our, our first talk for this session um, is from Laura and Brendan from Future Friendly. Um, Future Friendly, if you don't know about them, Future Friendly is one of my uh, favourite design uh, agencies out there. If I didn't have my own, I might be applying for a job there. Um, really great group of people. Um, and I don't say that because they're in the room, they, they just are. Um, but they do great work, uh, and they work across a whole range of really interesting spaces. So I'm, I'm very happy that Laura and Brendan agreed um, to present with us today. Um, they're going to be talking about how to incorporate evaluation um, into your design process, like that putting in place that feedback loop that tells you whether or not the thing that you've designed is actually delivering what you hoped and anticipated it would. Please join me in welcoming Laura and Brendan to the stage. Thank you very much. Thanks for such a lovely introduction. Um, thanks for having us today. Um, the title of our talk is Design Research and the Evaluation Frontier. Um, we are from Future Friendly. Um, my name's Laura um, and I head up our strategy practice, which is research and evaluation at Future Friendly. And this is Brendan. Hi, thank you. Um, okay, so uh, today really we, what we're going to do is we're going to answer three key questions. Um, the first is why should measurement matter to me, a design researcher? The next is, how do I decide what to measure? So what am I really looking for when I'm looking to measure a product that I've put out in the real world? Uh, and lastly, how do I put it into practice? What are the sort of things that I need to remember in order to be successful uh, in my evaluation journey? So let's talk about why measurement matters. Everyday digital services, the things that we all research and design on a day-to-day -day basis, have the power to really change people's lives and build a better future. Interactions with banks, the education system, your energy provider, your superannuation, your government. Designing these products really comes with a responsibility as minute changes that we make on a design level can have a profound and lasting impact on people's lives and their well-being. As user researchers, we know very well that a cadence of user testing is critical for de-risking those potential impacts during that concept development phase, and usability testing helps us to build confidence with these new feature releases that we're pushing out. There are these are really well-established processes. We know when it gets done, we know how to do it, and we know how to spot significance in those results that we obtain. But let me ask you this. How certain are you that the product or the service or the feature that you've researched is delivering positive outcomes for people in the real world? Is it working the way that you thought and said it would work? When and how did you last check? There's a bit to get through here, so we might unpack this a little further. There's an interesting nuance between a successful product and a positive outcome. Successful products drive people to re-engage with them again and again. But to really drive positive outcomes, we need to be actively and tangibly making people's lives better. The other thing to call out is that we're talking about this product existing in the real world. Understanding how a product works when walking through it in a concept or usability test is one thing, but are you sure that it still works in the real world at scale? Essentially, 
It boils down to, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. Without clear objectives, you're stuck in a constant state of guesswork. Being able to understand what you want to achieve and how to, how to measure whether you're achieving it will mean that you can improve the product and service that you're cre creating to produce that desired outcome. Cool, thanks Brendan. So um, this talk is a little bit different in that we're gonna go through how to do something in quite a practical kind of a way. Um, we're going to in introduce you to a measurement, evaluation and learning framework that we affectionately call MEL, um, that we've designed and iterated on a few times actually over the last couple of years. And when we embarked on this journey, um, naturally we started by looking at what already existed and the one thing that we discovered that most frameworks have in common is their sort of inherent complexity. And so, I'll do two clicks. It's got this and that, so bear with me. Um, so the framework we're sharing today is designed to overcome the shortcomings of those other frameworks that we came across. So the first thing we, we um, designed it to do is align stakeholders on what's important to measure. So everyone from the C-suite who are concerned about return on investment to frontline staff who are concerned about um, customer satisfaction, this framework is really about aligning and bringing everyone together about the thing that we need to measure that's most important. It's designed to be highly actionable, um, so it allows us to collect enough uh, data to um, see opportunities, but not so much data that it creates inertia and stops us from moving forwards. And the third thing it's designed to do is be highly consumable and understood by all stakeholders. So no jargon where possible, removing like superfluous layers, you know, those frameworks just go on for days, like just trying to cut all the guff out of that and get to the stuff that matters the most, um, which then in turn enable us, enables us to communicate simply. Um, we've used this framework for a number of clients, um, big four banks and um, also federal and state government clients, so it's kind of standing up to the pressure test at this moment in time, but obviously we always take a learning mindset. Um, what we're going to do is take you through the framework. Um, it's a bit esoteric until you kind of see it in practice, so the next thing we'll do is apply a bit of a case study. Um, before we take you through some principles for how to make it work the best. So this framework starts from the top and works down. Um, the first thing we want to align on is the mission. Um, this is the purpose of the product. It's a statement about the change that we want to make. Your mission can either be at a product or service um, level, which means you're fully on the hook to deliver it. Your product or service, you're making a statement that this product or service is fully on the hook to deliver this mission. Or you could have a more organisational lens, and what you're saying with that is we're kind of um, contributing to this mission, uh, but we're not fully on the hook to deliver it with this product. Um, obviously, missions should be really ambitious, um, it's the thing that you're working towards, that's the thing that's going to inspire people um, to do the work, but it also has to feel attainable and achievable. Next, after the mission, you can get into your impact areas. So the impact areas are things that we need to see collectively to be confident that we've actually delivered on the mission. It's basically taking your mission and putting it into little bite-sized chunks. 
So when you look at the impact areas, what you sort of want to think to yourself is, if we delivered all of these collectively, if we saw that change, would we feel confident that we delivered on the mission? Or is there something lacking there, in which case perhaps we need another impact area? Evaluation questions is the next part, and these are super critical. They play a really important role in bridging the gap between what we need to measure and how we're going to measure it. We've iterated this framework a number of times, as I mentioned before, and for me, the introduction of this layer was really when the rubber hit the road. Um, these evaluation questions really translate the impact areas into questions to be answered, um, and it makes the framework much, much easier to understand and ultimately much easier to report on as well. There's often more than one um, evaluation question per impact area. And basically that's the top part of the framework. So that's what we need to measure. How we need to measure it is then covered in these two remaining boxes. And they're the last ones. So once we have the evaluation questions, we can start to make more sensible decisions about what data we need to help us answer the questions and tell a story of impact. Um, this is the data we're collecting. These are the data points that we need. And finally, once we know what data we need, obviously we know what collection method we're going to employ to collect that data. So here it all is on one slide. You start from the top and you work your way down and there's a reason for that, which we'll explain shortly when we go through the principles. The top three boxes, the mission, the impact areas, and the evaluation questions really refer to what we need to evaluate. And the bottom two boxes, side by side there, really refer to how we're going to evaluate it. So as I said, cool framework, doesn't make much sense unless you can kind of see it in practice. So if you bear with me, I'll quickly um, talk you through an example of how we've done this in the past. So a couple of years ago, um, we researched, designed and built a digital career development tool for a New South Wales government agency. Um, the concept is super simple um, and can be best understood really through two key features. One, a career questionnaire. You go through it, you answer some questions about your career ambitions and your skills. Um, and then that spits out uh, career, some career advice, basically, in its simplest form. Um, in the design process, um, we'd obviously been as rigorous as we could, um, a good steady cadence of user research each and every sprint. Um, we were at the point where we really needed to pilot the product and understand if it was going to work at scale. And that obviously required us to have a measurement, evaluation and learning framework. So here it is in practice. Again, we'll start at the top, work our way down. So the mission was that the New South Wales public sector attracts and retains the highest quality digital talent. So attracting the highest quality talent is obviously a really ambitious statement, um, but it's not so ambitious that it's inconceivable, especially for the public service if they have the right strategy in place. The mission itself was, as I said before, sometimes is much larger than what the product or service can deliver, and this is an example of that. So our impact areas were really contributing to the realisation of this mission, but there were other initiatives by the public service to make sure that they could achieve this 
very ambitious mission. I'm not going to take you through every impact area. Um, I'm just going to take you through a few to just illustrate the point um, before we jump into the principles. So the first impact area was clarity and confidence when exploring digital career pathways. So this was really about ensuring that users knew how to use this career questionnaire, this pathway, this tool on, on the internet. Um, and this was important to the mission because if users weren't able to use the tool with clarity and confidence, um, how could we rely on this tool to attract new talent? Um, what we then did is we translated that impact area into a series of evaluation questions. One of them was, was the tool easy to use and complete? So as you can maybe see, translating that impact area into some simpler questions really makes it so much easier to start considering what the metrics might be that you would be choosing to evaluate and collect. The metric was then on a scale of one to five, how easy would it be for you to use the tool? And we obviously collected that data using a mixed method. So we had an exit survey on the site, which gave us a quantitative view um, whilst we also conducted some user interviews to enable us to dive a little bit more deeply into the human stories behind why it was easy or difficult or whatever. The second impact area was digital career mobility. Mobility is a very important thing in the public sector, being able to see those pathways, um, career mobility, progression and capability development. Um, again, we felt like this was a change that we needed to see to feel confident that we we're on track with that mission. So we translated that impact area into a few evaluation questions and one of them was, did it lead to more strategic conversations between managers and users of the tool? So, you know, managers are so instrumental in career development, um, it stands to reason that we would need to involve them in the process of evaluating the success of this tool. To answer that evaluation question, we measured the proportion of managers who said they felt better equipped in career development discussions than previously, and again we did that using a mixed method. The final um, impact area to illustrate this framework is um, the New South Wales public sector is an employer of choice for digital specialists. Again, you know, it stands to reason that to attract and retain talent, the New South Wales public sector really needs to be seen as a good place to work. So one evaluation question we had here was, did people use the tool inside and outside of the public service? So the tool wouldn't have been successful if it was only used by people internally because we needed to attract people from outside in. So the metric we looked at here was the proportion of users who were not working for the public service. And the first question in the questionnaire was exactly that, yes, no answer. So we were able to use um, analytics or results from the career questionnaire to determine that proportion. So this is the framework in action. And when it came to reporting on the performance or reporting on the, the pilot, as it were, at the end, um, we had 
this framework, which everyone had aligned on and co-designed. Um, so we had this to take our stakeholders through. We were able to determine what success looked like by really simply answering those key evaluation questions. Um, and by doing so, we were able to explain how the product was performing. So what we're going to do now is take you through um, some principles, five to be precise, there's always five, and then um, that will give you a little bit of an insight as to, yeah, how we actually use it. All right, so the first one we wanted to talk about uh, was that we want to start with what matters, not what's easy. So essentially, uh, we should start at the top of the framework to really ensure that we're measuring the right things not start with those metrics and go from the bottom up. There's a really common error when measuring products and services, um, and that's like using what data and collection methods already exist and are already being used as like a heuristic for what should be evaluated and what should be measured. Um, you know, there's always gonna be someone who suggests metrics such as like NPS and, and customer satisfaction because they're what the organization has always used. Um, we don't wanna use these as a starting point, but we want to start with our mission and our impact areas and then work down from there. You may find that you know these metrics are the ones that you end up using um, and because they do answer the questions that you need to answer. But by taking that top-down approach, you really have the confidence that they're right. So really, doing this really allows us to be led by what's important rather than what's, what exists. Uh, really evaluate that product performance against its purpose and really measure and report on the things that truly matter. This is going to get awkward when we do like the one, two. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, hold on. <laughs> so, um, tell your story simply. Um, the language of evaluation is in some ways unnecessarily complex and confusing. Um, what's an outcome? What's an output? What's a success metric? What's an indicator? Are they the same things? Are they different things? Um, Really, it just makes it difficult to interpret. Um, you sort of need to learn a new language and then you need to teach this language that you've only just learnt to other people, which is hard to do with any great deal of confidence. Um, this is why introducing evaluation questions was so critical for us. Um, it did a few things. It really improves organisational comprehension and ownership, obviously because questions are so much easier to understand and answer. Um, than the language of outcomes. Um, it's also a really natural way to structure a report. Um, you can basically just go through and answer those questions with the data that you've got. Um, evaluation questions are also a really great way of creating yeah, more actionable reports and believable recommendations. So the next one we want to talk about is having minimum viable metrics. So just like those things that we design, we need to make sure that what we're creating is easy to understand and is also easy to implement. Uh, there are a myriad ways to, to measure a key evaluation question and the more you have, the more complex it becomes to really determine performance and ultimately to report. So really to combat this, what we should do is we should aim for no more than two metrics, one being qualitative, one being quantitative. This really has that added benefit of employing a mixed methods approach, meaning we don't uh, only capture the what at scale, but also the why that this outcome has happened. 
So this really allows us to mitigate the risk of relying on one data point, which could potentially not gather enough data or, or build a trend, um, or too much data, which can in, induce a bit of data paralysis when it comes becomes hard to spot significance in a sea of data points and hard to action in the real world. And also allows us to have enough gut data to really gain insight into those patterns and performance as well. Um, the fourth principle is um, create space for unintended consequences. So unintended consequences are outcomes that are generated by the product that weren't predicted and therefore they aren't included for evaluation in the framework. Um, they can be positive or negative and either way they're a really important learning opportunity. So an example of this in the case study that I just shared with you was that when we started interviewing managers, um, we asked them about the most significant change that they had observed since the implementation of the career uh, pathway tool. And something we heard a few times um, was that staff who use the framework seemed to be progressing through their personal development plans faster than those who hadn't used it. Um, that's obviously a positive outcome that we hadn't actively sought to measure, um, but by understanding it, we were able to research a little bit more into that to sort of ascertain whether that was because, um, you know, whether that behaviour was attributable to this tool or if it was to do with the kinds of people who were more likely to use the tool. Um, so yeah, basically consider having an impact area that's dedicated to capturing successes and missteps uh, that don't neatly fit within the measurement evaluation and learning framework. Um, and also consider including a question about most significant change uh, when you conduct interviews to collect your data. Um, creating space to identify and evaluate these things allows us to do a few things. Um, celebrate unprecedented wins. That can be quite important from a funding standpoint as well. It's always nice to be able to say, hey, there's this thing we weren't expecting it to do, which it did, and isn't that nice? Let's find out how we can make it happen again. Um, it allows us to address and mitigate uh, negative outcomes in the future. So I've got I've got many examples of um, unintended negative outcomes. Feel free to ask me later. Um, and also um, allows us, as I said, to iterate on the product to really recreate and capture those, those outcomes. So when we see something positive, we can be intentional about making sure that we can recreate that in the future. Awesome. Uh, and our last one that we wanted to talk about, I think it's sort of been brought up a few times today already, um, is that you'd, we shouldn't be creating that framework in isolation. So it's okay to have opinions about what good looks like, um, but to really create believability and buy-in, uh, you really need to include those key stakeholders uh, from the get-go, essentially. And if you don't do that, what you'll end up doing is you'll spend more time convincing people that what you are doing is right, um, more, more so than if you just co-created from the start. Uh, so really it's important to involve them early and often to really increase their understanding and alignment of the goals that this framework is really trying to achieve. Uh, getting uh, those key stakeholders uh, input on what questions they want answered. So what things are sort of important to them, what do they need to know in order to sort of progress further with this. And lastly, uh, really increase that buy-in that the evaluation questions and the metrics that you have and therefore the results that you're gathering are correct and are true.
So um, yeah, just to recap, um, five principles. One, start with what matters, not what's easy. So that's about taking a top-down approach to evaluating product performance against purpose. The second one, tell your story really simply. Um, you can do this by translating impact areas into evaluation questions. Ensure that you have minimum viable metrics. You can do this by taking a mixed method approach to minimise the risk of too much or too little data against each impact area. Um, create space for unintended consequences. You can do this by including an impact area that captures successes and missteps that don't fit neatly within the MEL. And finally, don't create it in isolation. You can do this by co-creating the framework with key stakeholders um, to create believability and buy-in. So that's the framework one more time. And uh, that's it from us. Happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you very much. I've, I've been asked not to stand in the dark when I'm asking questions, but did you have a question? So thank you for that, um, very interesting. Um, so often, uh, and I'm sure for a lot of people in this room, what we do is in complex environments where you know, there's a multitude of um, factors at play uh, and, and you know, each of us in our remit might only be responsible for one part of that. So how do you, I guess, manage both for the positive and the negative side of that attribution challenge in this framework in, in terms of especially the broader outcomes? Yeah, I think I understand your question. So you're saying that um, in big organisations like you're responsible for separate parts and that you're trying to work out how to deal with negative outcomes or positive outcomes or how to learn from them? Yeah, or even your tool, you know, that probably gets implemented with change Yeah, I think the key thing with this tool is that it can either work on a, it scales, right? So in theory, and we've used it this way in practice as well, is you, if you wanted to, you could go all the way down to a feature level, not purporting that that would be particularly useful, but if that's the way your business operated, then perhaps it would be. Um, or it can scale all the way up to like an organisational um, MEL. Um, or somewhere in the middle, which is where we um, tend to use it and where we've experienced the most success, is at a um, product or service level. Um, I think that one of the critical factors for success um, is making sure that you've kind of got uh, alignment across the organisation um, and that everyone understands what it is that you're reporting on and why. So um, without sort of knowing the intricacies of like your professional workspace, I'd say at a principal level, that's that's probably the crux of it. Yeah. We've got a question from Tim that he sent through. The question is, um, as an external agency, when you work with clients, how do you go about convincing them to adopt the framework and, and potentially change their normal ways of working? Um, I'll, I'll jump in and then if you've got something to add. Um, this is, this is a really interesting question for me personally because um, it was probably about, I'm going to say like th three or so years ago, um, that we started to think beyond like usability and concept testing in a lab and started thinking 
that's, that's great, but we also have this serious responsibility actually to make sure that when we launch a product and it goes live, especially when you're working with like government clients or big banks or superannuation that really impact large cohorts, um, that the thing that we intend to deliver, and we're pretty sure that we do because we've been testing it as we've been going, is actually working at scale. And when that penny dropped, we started to use a framework like this. And we, there was a little bit of resistance, um, candidly, from um, clients and organisations because I think initially it was seen as like an additional cost centre. Um, we don't need to pilot it. We've already done so, we've been so rigorous throughout this entire process. At some, at some point, you just have to go live. And I actually do believe that. I do believe at some point you just have to pull the trigger as it were and see how it, how it lives in the world and what the consequences are. But I also, on the other hand, and I think this has been working really well for us, like a four to eight week pilot from a cost perspective is actually a massive risk mitigation strategy. And so if you can start using this as an instrument to continue to de-risk but not have it massively slow down your launch, um, I think that's the important positioning um, for a tool and a process like this. Yeah. The, I mean, the framework doesn't feel as though it only belongs in a pilot stage though. It feels like the kind of thing that you could be deploying as an ongoing feedback mechanism throughout the life cycle of the service, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we often um, will, yes, as you've pointed out, we're an external, um, like we consult to clients. So we would have um, this framework, we would run a pilot and then they can take that and continue to use it throughout. Um, so I think it's like the longevity or durability of the tool is actually quite helpful um, as well, which is another way of kind of saying at this, there's value in, in, in doing this and investing in it. Yeah. Um, I had another question uh, about the framework itself, which is I'm always um, interested in the difference between leading and lagging indicators of performance. So a lot of evaluation frameworks can focus on effectively the lagging indicators. What can we see now that tells us how things have performed effectively in the past versus things that we can measure today that tell us how it might be performing, you know, in three months' time or that kind of thing. So something like the interest rates, um, you know, that goes up last Tuesday and that normally gives us a, a leading indicator of... Um, mortgage stress and rental stress at some future point, typically sort of three to six months down the line. Um, is that, like, is, are, are those considerations factored into your choice of metrics and, um, and what you're measuring? Um, yeah, yes, definitely. Um, I think I'm smiling because I'm, I'm like experiencing this very challenge right now <laughs> with, with this framework. Sorry. Like not, it's not a shortcoming of the framework. It's a challenge that you have, I think, when you're doing short uh, pilots as well. Um, so the answer is yes. I think also some, um, like if you're working in um, programs which are trying to deliver good social impact, um, those, those are often... Um, long-term impacts that can't necessarily be measured or realised 
you know, after a four-week pilot or whatever, which I guess is also why it's important to have a framework that is durable enough to look at the long-lasting long impacts over time. Um, yeah, so I think you sort of want to, I think that the approach remains the same. It's that you want to, you want to go top down so that you're being led by the purpose because the purpose and mission, again, I, it should remain. I think it's pretty safe to say, but I think it's an interesting point because if you if you take that lens, you, you, in theory, what you really should be doing is if you were to take this this framework forward um, for several horizons of work, you would keep re-prosecuting its relevance um, every quarter or you know, every six months or every 12 months, whatever, whatever, just to make sure that it still stands the test of time. And then because the other thing is that you've pointed out, um, which we come up time and time again, is you go through this process of going top down. You know these are things that you want to measure and then at some point um, there's like a feasibility or viability issue. So we need this data to measure this evaluation question. That is not going to be possible for six months. What's the proxy uh, that we need to use now um, to enable us to have some concept of how we're going against that, rather tracking against that, uh, and then in six months' time you've, you've got the thing that you need to do it in a more accurate or complete way, yeah. Thank you. Um, Jules asked a question, uh, you mentioned that the framework went through a number of iterations, they're wondering what changed? Yeah, the biggest thing was the evaluation questions, I think, like, I, I, like, it's so weird um, how hard it is. Well, it's not weird, actually. Like, out, the language of outcomes and outputs is, it's just hard. Like, I just, it just is. Like, it's just, you, you, either, you either sort of do it over and over again and the penny drops and you go, shit, okay, I get it now. Or, or it doesn't, which is also fine, right? But for some reason, it's just really hard to get people's heads around it. And then, as Brendan said, like, you don't, you don't want to spend your time with evaluation um, trying to educate people on the framework. Like, you want it to be as intuitive and easy to understand as possible. So, as soon as you insert a question, I don't know what it is about how the human brain works. If anyone here knows, come and tell me, explain it to me. But as soon as it's framed as a question, it becomes, like, more tangible or something. It's like, oh, it's okay, now I understand. Like, it's either going to be, you know, good, bad, yes, no, some, you know, it's it just clicks and until we had that we were originally going from impact areas which were kind of like this pseudo outcome output confusing conflict like just th all those things combined into metrics and it was bedlam like it was just utter chaos and you couldn't draw a line between those things so it was a small like it feels like a small step because it's just like a little bar in a framework, but honestly, it, it was a game changer. Yeah. Do you want to add to that, Brendan? Oh, yeah. Sorry, just one thing to add about those evaluation questions. One sort of power, superpower that they have is that they can tell the story to anybody, even some person who hasn't had exposure to it at the time, because essentially what you're doing is presenting all of your findings in that sort of question answer format as well. Like, anyone gets that, yeah. no matter how far down the you know, maturity of understanding a MEL framework they are. That's great. Please join me in thanking Laura and Brendan. Awesome work. Thank you.